This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, who's also a senior economist to Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Putin Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of any investment products. The user guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Have a very interesting show with an economist from Columbia uh, University who was at the debates this week. Daniel DiMartino, uh, we get to his views on economic policy, immigration, what he heard at the debates. But Professor, to kick off the show, uh, everybody was waiting for Powell. We got the Powell yeah. speech. We got the big NVIDIA earnings report this week. A few things going on in the markets. But w- any surprises on, on what you heard? Uh, yes. Uh, so I was frankly disappointed in his speech. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, really. There, the only thing that's changed from a month ago, and that's when you know the last FOMC meeting was was held, was stronger economic growth. But the stronger economic growth was due to the higher productivity, a jump in productivity. Uh, he did not mention that at all. He seemed to worry that the stronger economic growth, uh, you know, could ignite more inflation from the labor market. There is no. Uh, evidence that the labor market is tightening now. There's no evidence that it's loosening at all significantly, but definitely the rate of hiring and hours is way down this year from last year. Estimate for next uh, Friday, when we do get the employment report, is I think, what, well, 140, 160. So there doesn't seem to be pressure on that front. Uh, 11% of the workforce is unionized. A lot of the big increases are catch-up increases. Um, and a lot of the other real wage increases are productivity. And it seemed like it was just sort of a knee-jerk a Keynesian, um, I shouldn't say Keynesian, Phillips, Curvian type of thing. Oh, yeah, stronger economic growth means tighter labor markets, means more wages, means more inflation, without really looking into the details of that. And if he did, he would see that what, uh, in my interpretation, what has happened over the last month since the meeting um, has not been any uh, inflationary uh, or or not. Uh, However, it it doesn't really matter. There's another month of data before they're going to have the meeting. We, you know, and and he, you know, there'll be more voices in that direction. We know there are some prominent dubs now that are voting members that are going to talk about it. Delinquencies are up. So, you know, there's something that Pat Harker from Philadelphia has been worried about, and that has now been mentioned by many other firms. I mean, so there'll be more data that has actually come. I do expect them to pass in that September meeting. I don't think they know what they're going to do in November. There's a lot of data coming down the pike. Um, NVIDIA just emphasizes, um, uh, really, uh, again, the, the, that this is this is something that's going to spur growth in, into the future. Real GDP growth is going up. Real interest rates are going up. Um, and that is going to keep these levels of interest rates firm. There's you know, more talk about that R-square, that equilibrium real rate on the short side being higher than the 0.5%. Uh, and I concur that that probably has moved up uh, recently. Um, uh, I, I think profits are basically going are, are basically going to hold. There might be some diminution. Again, nothing different. Fight between numerator and denominator. Numerator is going up on profits. Denominator is going up on real uh, real interest rates, keeping stocks somewhat defensive. Next week is a big week. We're going to have the money supply. Um, we're going to have the Case-Shiller index, and of course, on Friday we're going to have that labor market report. We're also going to have the PCE report, and and we're going to have the uh, the second estimate of uh, of the GDP inflation. So wow. Uh, that, not much data this week, but next week, uh, tons of data, tons to talk about uh, in our uh, noon um, um, discussion. 
Are you looking at the the price action in the in since Nvidia's report? I mean, right after it was a huge number, it went up actually in the after hours trading, uh, but it couldn't hold yesterday. Today, as we're looking at lunchtime here, down four percent today when it blew out expectations. Um, is this a? What's your reaction to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I I think this just shows how high expectations are. Uh, the, when the you know the whisper number was I mean this, it really traded up to the whisper number everyone expected it to beat a lot and then you know uh, and 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 everyone <laughs> the buy side economists all raised their price targets immediately I mean some uh, what, was there one a thousand I don't even remember eight hundred or I mean crazy and yet uh, you know everyone sort of said well you know I, I bought beforehand and and now there's there's pressure on the downside, but the real interest rate, you know, for any long-lived asset, um, you know, real interest rates are a discount rate problem for them. Um, uh, again, I mean, Nvidia shows that the demand is there, um, and that real, real GDP is probably going to be going up. We'll see if these productivity growth that we saw in the second quarter is going to hold in the third quarter. Looks that way um, from from the GDP estimates, at least uh, going forward, um, that is what's causing the real rates to go up. And also, again, the fact that bonds are, are being less and less viewed as the great hedges that they once were before this inflationary cycle. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a game of whisper versus reality. It's a game of, you know, buy, you know, buy on uh, the rumors, sell on the news, um, which is one of the oldest adages of Wall Street. And, uh, you know, it's almost impossible to tell whether all the factors have been built in when the news actually did come out. Yeah, it was an absolute blowout. No, not, no disappointment at any point. It was just a question of what, what buyers are actually left and, um, you know, what discount rate are they using? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I heard Harker speak from Jackson Hole yesterday, it, it felt like he was listening to some of his Wharton colleagues here with you. <laughs> like it felt like he, he was- He called me in actually for a luncheon and and uh, we had talked a month ago and you know, he said, you know, I'm, I I have been listening to you and I do see the the, the, the threats. I mean, there, it, I, you know, again, I, I've not now felt that recession is inevitable, but I said the downside risks are certainly at least as much as the upside. And Powell is on the other side. He still thinks upside are slightly more in downside, beginning to acknowledge at the last meeting that there was some downside. But, um, you know, he's still in the mode of thinking of upside risks rather than the fact that when we see delinquencies, we see the tightening of that. We see, again, the rise in the real interest rate. I mean, again, that long rate mortgage is a seven and a half. What's the, is that going to? You know, he talked about the revival of housing. Well, he didn't even mention, well, how will that survive a seven and a half percent mortgage rate, which a lot of people are, uh, in fact, uh, uh, questioning. So, uh, again, I, 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 I didn't I, I didn't find Powell's comments to be it was more mechanical uh, of the type of uh, worldview that he's had over the last three years rather than digging deep into the data. But I'm am convinced that he and the FOMC are more aware of the downside risk, certainly now, um, than they were earlier this year when they were just, you know, tightening so strongly with uh, seemingly no no worry about those downside risks. Well, Professor, uh, we're wrapping up the summer. Look forward to your take on all of next week's data. Yeah. Thanks for starting off the show. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Jeremy. We'll see you. Well, I'm going to turn our conversation over to our guest for the hour. We have Daniel DiMartino, who's an economist uh, and, and studying economic policy. He's got a, a, a thing. I'm going to ask you to explain your background and your story, um, uh, but also, you know, you've been at the Manhattan Institute. Talk a little bit about what you're studying, your, how you came to the U.S. as uh, be part of the story of what we're focused on today um, as immigration policy. But tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your story and, and what you're focused on. 
For sure. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I am doing my PhD in economics at Columbia University, just entering the fourth year now, this, this upcoming fall semester, uh, specializing in immigration economics, which is also what I do for the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, which is based here out of New York City. And I am also the founder of the Dissident Project, a nonprofit that sends immigrants who lived in authoritarian countries to speak at high schools to tell their stories. Uh, I'm originally from Venezuela, uh, which is, you know, big now in the immigration uh, debate because of all the Venezuelans who are coming here through through the southern border due to the crisis in our home country. And, uh, you know, that's part of what made me passionate about immigration. I came to America in 2016, also playing socialism. And, um, you know, that that's kind of what made me want to study economics in the first place since I was a, a very young, young kid, because I, I lived hyperinflation. I lived shortages with price controls, which is not something that most economists have lived. They just they have just studied. Right. I'll give you a little background. We need to get the professor Siegel to tell some of his personal story. But I always joke that he was he you know went to the University of Chicago to study under Milton Friedman. And I say this was like his rebellion against his mother, who was a profound communist, and she took him to Russia to study under Wow. to try to send him over there. Um, it's a pretty funny rebellion against your parents uh, can go straight. Well, I like that rebellion. So, but no, he went to Columbia undergrad and then then MIT, so a lot, lot in common there. In terms of your, tell, so, take on all the policies, but you were also, this week I saw on social media, you were at the Republican convention or the debate, uh, you know, there. Tell us about your experience on the ground, what you thought live in the audience, what you thought about the policies, what any hot takes from the debate? Yeah, well, I it was my first time being at a, at a debate in person, and uh, it was a fantastic experience. I had a lot of fun, a lot of good friends there. And uh, I'll say I, I wish he had been more specific on policies. You know, I think debates over time have become less and less policy focused and more personality uh, focused. But, you know, we, we saw some things that I think were, were very encouraging on, on economic policy. For example, Nikki Haley was the only one who talked about how we need to also, you know, put responsibility on Republicans for overspending, right? They also passed a lot of the COVID stimulus that ended up creating, you know, I think leading to a lot of the inflation we're seeing. And, um, you know, Mike Pence was the only candidate on the stage, though not the only one who supports this, but the only one on the stage to say, yes, we actually do need to reform Social Security and, and Medicare because that's what's driving our long-term deficits. And finally, we did see some discussion about immigration. Unfortunately, it was all about border security, nothing else. And uh, not, not very specific either beyond we need to build a wall <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, and even uh, in, in Trump's interview with Tucker, like the only policy thing was we're going to defend the southern border and uh, oh, and send the military, right? Uh, which, you know, we already people don't know this, but we already have the military at the southern border. We have thousands of national of National Guard at the southern border, who, by the way, can't do absolutely anything because it's all a show that the National Guard and no U.S. military personnel has the legal authority to enforce immigration law. Right. So at the end, it's, it's all, in my opinion, a waste of money. So this is where I wanted to get into. You, you've been writing a lot about different policies, Biden policies, and how it contrasts with some other things, and how it's working. I want to get into all that. But, but I, on your personal story on on from Venezuela to tell our, us a little bit about what's actually happening there and and how that has shaped your views of the right policies. Yeah, well, you know, Venezuela used to be uh, one of the richest countries in the world in the fifties and sixties. It was the fourth country by GDP per capita. Um, because obviously much of Europe was destroyed after World War II, and and then the all the only countries that were developed left were the United States, Canada, Australia, and then Venezuela, of course, because Venezuela was also the country providing oil to the world for most of the war. And uh, by then, we were the number one exporter of oil. Hmm. Today, Venezuela is not the number one exporter of oil, it's the number one exporter of people. Venezuelans are the largest international refugee group in the world, more than Ukrainians and Syrians. And that's a testament to how bad things got, right? Uh, there are over seven and a half million Venezuelans living outside our country, including, you know, obviously including myself and a lot of others. And uh, it's, it's, it's in a country of about, that used to have about 30 million people. So we're talking about a quarter of the population left in a span of maybe seven to eight years. Um, 
And that all happened because in 1999, a socialist government took over after being democratically elected and decided that the solution to our economic problems was to nationalize businesses, was to impose price controls on the businesses that were not nationalized, was to impose so much red tape and, and, and regulation and, and overtaxation that destroyed those private businesses, was to control imports and exports tremendously, post currency and capital controls, you know, all the policies that economists have all figured out are terrible for your economy, right? You know, this is microeconomics, intro to micro, that price controls cause shortages. Uh, it's, you know, it's intro to micro that, you know, may profit maximizing firms try to, you know, uh, profit maximize and therefore produce and do things that are in their best interest. The the government in Venezuela blamed inflation on the businesses rather on their own overprinting, right? Which because they spent so much money, they couldn't borrow from international markets. So they just decided to use the central bank as the cash cow and money supply was growing at thousands percent per year. And as a consequence, inflation was growing at thousands percent per year and then over a million percent in 2019, the peak year. Um, now, since then, inflation has come down. So now things in Venezuela in the last couple of years have stabilized because there has been a de facto dollarization of the economy. Venezuelans have ditched the, the, the Venezuelan Bolivar and now most transactions are happening in dollars in cash or through uh, online payment apps like Cell uh, and others. And, uh, you know, you, you can see these from Bloomberg has actually great uh, reporting on the ground and journalists that, that have measured this. And, uh, you know, it's it's a good thing, I think, right, that dollarization happened because it means that those who earn in U.S. dollars are able to protect their purchasing power. But that doesn't mean things are good. It just means they don't get worse for that segment of the population. For the people who work for the government, which is about half of the population working as public employees, they're earning in Venezuelan currency and inflation is two thousands percent. You know, and a retiree with a pension in Venezuela is making about five dollars a month in pension. That's their pension. And the cost of living is similar to that of most U.S. states, like uh, food and, and shelter and everything. You know, shelter might be cheap. You know, imagine you own your, your house. You don't pay anything. People will avoid taxes. Sure. Um, but how do you pay for food with five dollars a month? You can't. And so that's why we have 25% of the population live so that those who leave send remittances back into the country and those who are left don't starve to death. So, so that's where the dollars are coming. I was gonna ask you like, how do you get dollars into the country? And it seems like it's it, it's like the black market type transactions, not an official channels all below the ground. Um, is it just from people sending in, what's the most common way people get dollars in? Good, yeah. Well, the, the most common way is that a lot of Venezuelans used to have bank accounts in the United States because Venezuela, you know, used to be a rich country, right? This is where Venezuela differs so much from Cuba, right? C Cuba didn't have internet when communism took over. And so all remittances in Cuba are gone through the government. The government taxes them. It's a source of revenue for the Castro regime. In Venezuela, we already had internet when Chavez took over and even, even more expanded and advanced by the time he really took over all institutions, right, as he spent more time in power. And so a lot of Venezuelans have bank accounts in the U.S. And as a consequence, they just use those to pay with other people who have bank accounts too, and they just transfer internally. Um, there was already a lot of cash in Venezuela. Remember, we are also a, we're not an island, so we we cash can enter through Colombia, and it does. People already had U.S. dollars in cash that, that circulated. There is certainly a shortage of cash. There, you know, Venezuelans want more U.S. dollars in cash than than there are available, um, and so as a consequence, there's a lot of contraband with Colombia. Um, there's a lot of illegal drug business happening, unfortunately, too. Uh, Venezuela also became a, a hub for cocaine trafficking because the regime itself, uh, actually the military lifts off drug trafficking. Uh, they're indicted on a Department of Justice um, investigation uh, as the government itself becoming a cartel called the, the Cartel of the Sons. Um, so, so this is a pretty complex situation, but economically it means that you know, as the country has dollarized uh, in that way, the, even the banks have allowed Venezuelans, the domestic banks, to open those dollar bank accounts mm -hmm. internally. 
and save your dollars and put them in, in boxes. So, so the market has responded and the government has not yet messed up with it. In the moment they do, then I expect a lot more struggle. It, it's fascinating when you think about the world. I mean, one of the narratives this week was you have the BRICS summit. Are people going to go away from the dollar? You have Argentina. You have the rise of the new politician who wants to dollarize. And you got this narrative of we got to go away from the dollar. <laughs> but in times of stress, people like this, you're saying come to the dollar. Um, any other views about that? Any any sense of that the yeah. going on in Argentina too? Yeah, well, first, I've never bought into the narrative of de-dollarization. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Governments don't decide what's the world's reserve currency. People decide what's the world's reserve currency. And uh, the Chinese people are not going to start saving in yuan because the CCP tells them. They know they can't trust the CCP to uphold their promises and keep their savings secure. Not just about inflation, not just about economic stability, just politically, they know the CCP has the power to take away their savings whenever they want. They know that that's not going to happen in the United States, or at least the likelihood is infinitely smaller here than there. And as a consequence, regardless of what the CCP says, regardless of the, what the Brazilian government or any other Russian government, any of them says, their population is still going to save in US dollars. And that's all we need for the dollar to maintain its world reserve status. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. You, I, we think about all the, and you were just at the the Republican debate. So you think about all the issues. We think about where our current political system is, and then I just traveled to Peru and came back uh, overnight, and they had seven presidents in in, in a <laughs> few years. I mean, every year something new going on. You hear, you see what what's happening to these other markets. It, it makes makes you think about as bad as our political system is. Perhaps there, there's something to oh, it. Sure. And in Argentina, there, I, I think, you know, Millet, for all the things I think the media has smeared him on, he's certainly not a far right radical or anything like that. He's literally just a libertarian or like a real libertarian. Um, and, you know, certainly he's unorthodox in the way he speaks. I think that that's part of why he's popular. But his proposal of dollarization, I think it's really what Argentina needs. I'm, I'm, I'm very much of the belief that certain countries just simply cannot be trusted their governments to have a currency. And while there are disadvantages to dollarization, for sure, um, I think that if you're not in a politically stable country, dollarization just benefits far away the costs. And I think Ecuador, Panama, El Salvador show that. And if Argentina were to dollarize, I think their inflation problems would be solved. I, I think I, I had seen something on Twitter recently um, that, you know, a lot of people are opposed to dollarization in Argentina, that what they need is to balance the budget. Surely dollarization, though, it's going to force Argentina to balance the budget because they simply will not be able to print money. And um, sure, it, will it be a hard adjustment? Yes. Will it be a shock? 100%. Will there be a recession? Probably. But Argentina is already in recession. It's already in a in a highly inflationary process with over 100% inflation. And I think it's a trade-off. And I think it's a trade-off that Argentinians are willing to take. What about the U.S.? We printed a lot of money. We had an explosion in the money supply. Powell says there's no relation between the money supply and inflation. I think I heard you make a pretty strong case that the inflation here is from coming from some of the money supply. Is, does the U.S. have to get attacked in order or are we already on the path? So, sure. You, you know, I think it depends, right? Um, well, first, a lot of our money supply is absorbed by the rest of the world. That's not the case with the money supply of Argentina or Venezuela, right? Nobody around the world will demand Argentinian pesos or Venezuelan bolivars. So, you know, that, that's what allows us. I, I think really the inflation here came not necessarily from the Fed's actions, so though I think that they, they could have done a better job. It really came from the type of spending that, that was and the money that was created, right? You know, as we saw in the Great Recession, that the money supply increased tremendously in the Great Recession. But where did that money supply go? To excess reserves of banks. The money was just stored under the under the bed, right? There was no velocity, no multiplier there. But the money that was created during our COVID recession was in checks to people that was immediately spent, immediately circulated over the economy very rapidly, and of course created inflation. And so it's like, you know, helicopter money is not the same as QE. Yes. Clearly, I, I think that, that this showed. 
Uh, something Professor Siegel, it's right off of something you would have read in his book and also uh, that we talk about in the show all the time. So yeah, we, we obviously fully, fully agree with that, that worldview. So let's talk a little bit back to the why, why we invited you, um, some, some of your ideas on the immigration policy. Do you hear anything at the debates on immigration, a sensible policy? I mean, you have written a lot of this stuff, um, and we'll, we'll drill into some of those papers, but on the current candidates, is anybody saying things better than others? I think there are several, yes, uh, who are saying good things. Um, they're not overly specific, but I can tell you that certainly um, some are saying really bad things. So I can, you know, for example, Nikki Haley is one of the candidates who responded, and you can see this on the Breitbart questionnaire that they asked all the candidates on immigration. Nikki Haley is the only one who believes, for example, that our immigration system should not be based off of arbitrary quotas set by the government, but rather we should have a merit-based standard and everybody who meets it legally should be allowed to come into the United States. I think that that's a much better approach than the one we take. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot, Mike Pence is another one who I think has good ideas to and, and wants to make our legal process more efficient, even if he wants to restrict eligibility for other people who are currently eligible. Uh, Vivek is another one who has come out uh, in favor of, uh, you know, more uh, high skilled migration to the United States and, and Asa Hutchinson as well. Um, the other candidates seem to only focus on border security, even uh, and, and basically think that the immigration debate is all about the southern border. Uh, I think that's a shame because really immigration is about our legal immigration system and the southern border is the southern border. Like the illegal immigration problem has nothing to do with how many H-1B visas we have. They're just yeah. completely separate issues. And I'm, I also, you know, from a more humanitarian perspective, I think it's a shame to hear candidates like Ron DeSantis say that we should use lethal force on the southern border. This is not North Korea. We don't kill people who try to cross the border. And I understand that they say, well, you know, this is only for drug dealers people who bring in fentanyl through the border. But the reality is that 99% of the fentanyl that comes to the border comes through in trucks, through the ports of entry, driven by US citizens. So unless Ron DeSantis's proposal is to kill on the spot at the border, Americans who are driving cars with drugs without judicial process, right, which would be completely constitutionally humane, that's what that means, killing people, right? And then even if it's migrants, right? Imagine the few migrants who do cross some, uh, some drug meals, right? Very few, you can count them with your hands, literally how many of those have occurred in last year. Um, okay, what's the process gonna be like? You cash them in the border, you check their back before you kill them or you kill them before you check the back. How does that work, right? That's what I think. You know, that's not what America is about. If you are bringing fentanyl through the border, I 100% think you should be arrested and all the way of the law should fall upon you. But this country does, is not about vigilante justice. That's not yeah. what this is about. Yeah. So you you talk a little bit about Biden's policies on this and how they've been working. And Venezuela is one of the great examples of where you see that working. So for people who are unfamiliar with actually be a formal policy what changed um sort of define some of the terms of this parole program what it means and and the the change as a result of of the new policies yes uh so obviously legal immigration has increased uh during the biden administration i think that's undeniable um it's not 7 million people as uh, some outlets are claiming. Uh, you know, there's people need to understand about the, how these numbers are reported by the media versus what they actually are. Um, there have been since January 2021, 7 million border encounters at the border. Encounters does not mean people. Think about this because most of those encounters were what we call Title 42 encounters. Title 42 is not a, it's not a tool anymore because the pandemic ended. But that meant that as soon as they caught you, they, re, they sent you back to Mexico. Those people did not come into the United States. That's already three and a half million that are not actually people here. Those people then came back and counted as Title Eight encounters because they were expelled immediately and then they came back and then they got expelled again. Some people got expelled four or five times. So we were triple, quadruple, quintuple counting uh, border encounters as people. 
uh, you know, and of those who, some of them got arrested, some of them got deported, some of them got let in. Uh, the reality is that we probably have about two net two more million illegal immigrants since Biden came into office, not seven million. Two million is a lot, but you know we have to accurately count. And not, though illegal immigration since the, the beginning of 2023 has come down, and the reason it has come down is because or, or illegal immigration, just the, the demographics of, of who comes has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. 20 years ago, 90% of the people who were crossing the border were Mexican. So it was easy to simply catch them and send them back to their country right across the border. By the time of the Obama administration, about half of them were Central American. That was more complicated. It's farther away, you know, uh, you, it's more costly to deport. It's You have to follow more legal procedures to do it because you have to fly them. Um, but we were doing it. Now it's all over the world. And many of the countries where these people are coming from don't even accept deported citizens. Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua will not let America lay, land planes in their country with deported citizens. So how do you deport people that their countries won't accept? China does not accept its deported citizens. And now a ton of Chinese are coming here because they know they cannot be deported back to China. And so this is as much a foreign policy issue as it is an immigration policy issue. And what the Biden administration has done, I think, on those specific countries that I think has worked, not on the arrest, you know, illegal immigration is still high, but, but not from these countries, is that to stem the tide of Venezuelan, Cuban, Nicaraguan, and Haitian illegal migration, they created what's called the CHNV process. First to Venezuela in October, and then expanded to Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua in January. Uh, what this process means is that anybody who is legally in the United States can apply to sponsor somebody from those four countries. And they are allowed to come here legally by plane, not paying any cartel, taking away money from those criminal organizations, not risking their lives through Central America or anything like that. And they can land here, they can work legally for a period of up to two years, they can request asylum if they'd like, or they can go back. And we also know where they are, Every, they're vetted against criminal background checks, they have to get vaccinated, there's a lot of requirements. Your sponsor cannot be extremely poor, you're not going to end up homeless. And they're allowing up to 30,000 people like that every month to come. I estimated for the Manhattan Institute that as a consequence of letting in 30,000 people from those countries every month, we reduced illegal immigration from there by nearly 100,000 every month, which means that not only are we reducing illegal immigration, we're reducing total net migration by over 60,000 people a month. That, that is huge. That is a huge achievement. And the people who come are not going to be homeless. They're not going to be on welfare. They're going to be with Americans, integrate more easily. And they're also, by the way, easier to deport because we know where they are. So why has it been so effective? Why are less, why is it net reducing? Um, because now you can do it legally. Right, because now people are willing to wait for their turn. Because there people, a lot of Americans have this misconception that there is this imaginary line of people waiting to enter legally and that the illegals are just skipping the line. The reality is that there's no line. Uh, most Americans don't know, don't, most immigrants have no path to come to the United States. And what this process allowed is that now those immigrants can wait and have to actually wait to be eligible in their home countries for their turn. And so they're willing to wait a year even or two years. And this delays migration. And in that process, some of those people will end up not coming here. They might end up going to Chile. They might end up you know, passing away or, or, or they might have different preferences over time. Things might improve in their, in their personal situation. And that's why reduced net migration. Let's talk about what you think is the most important immigration issue that we need to solve. Frame us what you see as the key issue. Yeah, I think not just the most important immigration issue, I think the most important public policy issue right now is high-skilled migration. Uh, I think the U.S., really, there are very few free lunches in public policy, but really one of those free lunches, both in economic terms and national security, is expanding highly skilled migration. And with highly skilled, I mean people with PhDs, I mean people in, in STEM areas, I mean people who are 
very wealthy businessmen who are willing to open businesses and create jobs in the United States, entrepreneurs, high potential individuals, young people who are highly educated. And um, the reality is that our system greatly limits this type of migration. Well, we have very generous policies towards uh, family-based migration. Uh, out of the more, a little over 1 million green cards that are given out annually to foreigners, uh, over 70% are to family members uh, of US citizens. About the rest, half are, are given to refugees and asylees, and less than 14% are given to people who are coming here based on employment. Out of those, most of them are the family members of them, not, not really the highly skilled person themselves. We limit the number of millionaires who are opening businesses in the US getting green cards to less than 10,000 a year. It's, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, if you are going to invest millions of dollars here and create jobs, we shouldn't limit the number of people who wanna do that. We should want more and more of them. Um, same if you are a Nobel Prize winner, why should we limit the number of physics Nobel Prize winners allowed to come to the United States? It's not like there are millions of them around the world. We should just allow a few thousand more a year. And the most important angle for high school migration is that these are people who are net taxpayers. They pay over their lifetime much more in taxes than they consume in benefits, so they would close down our budget deficit. And we can steal them from China, from Russia, from other enemies, Iran, and the, obviously we're talking about highly vetted people, but China's losing population. They're losing hundreds of thousands of citizens a year. We're gaining still population. We can take manpower, tax revenue from China. We can take intelligence away from China by bringing in those people who love America, who are against communism, and who are highly skilled to come here. I estimate, you know, for example, there are about 20 million people in China between ages of 25 and, and 35 who are uh, college educated and uh, would like to move to the U.S. at some point in their lives. We could gradually take some of those away every year to the point that over the next century, China would lose millions of citizens because they lose those people plus their children and their grandchildren, right? And um, and it would be a huge boon because it, it would, would make China smaller, less powerful relative to us. So why aren't we doing this? What 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 is the argument that people have? I mean, it seems common sense that you want to bring in, and, and particularly at a time now, why, why should the Fed be clamping down the economy if, you know, some of the inflationary words are we don't have enough workers. We've had a structural downshift in people. They're aging of the populations. We need workers for many things, high skilled in particular, but everything. Why, why, why are people resistant to this change? Yeah, I'll say, though, I don't think the effect on inflation of immigration is meaningful at all. Um, because, I mean, obviously, the immigrants are workers, but they're also consumers. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it's totally clear what's the directional impact. But the, what is clear is that they would expand our economy, not just for themselves, but they would benefit natives. There's a ton of research that shows that, for example, expanding the number of H-1B visas makes companies more profitable, innovative, and also increase the wages and productivity of other American workers. Uh, I have a, a paper that is going to come out at some point from about Indian migration to the U.S. and shows that more Indians coming to the U.S. not only increases innovation from those people, but also increase the patents filed by Americans who are not Indian. Uh, so there are spillovers, right? Because highly educated people work with each other. They create ideas by talking with each other. That, that is a good thing that we want more of. And the, unfortunately, the arguments against it are either, I think, economically ignorant or outright um, bad faith. So one of them is that, you know, we don't need more immigrants. We have, you know, we should just train Americans for highly skilled jobs. The reality is that we train Americans for highly skilled jobs. They just don't even apply for PhD programs <laughs> in STEM areas. You know, that's the biggest problem for universities like mine. Americans just don't apply. And PhD programs are not costly. They're free. They pay us to study. So what, what else do Americans you know, want? The, and, and also, I, I think it's condescending and paternalistic for the government to say Americans should study what we want them to study. Why not just letting immigrants who are going to be doing those things and are highly smart and intelligent and will benefit Americans too? The, the, the other argument is that uh, you know all these people that we're going to let in are spies? The letting in more Chinese people is letting in communists. Uh, 
And this was literally the argument that was put out in an official um, press release by the Republican Study Committee in the House of Representatives led by Jim Banks. And I think it's highly offensive, especially as somebody coming from a socialist country like me from Venezuela. We don't come here because we are socialists. We come here because we hate socialism, right? And there's already laws in our country in the Immigration and Nationality Act that prohibit members of totalitarian parties, including communist parties, from immigrating to America. I'm very happy. I'm very supportive of enforcing those laws. Just vet the people who come here, which we already do. If you're a member of the Chinese Communist Party, willingly um, or, or even unwillingly, and you support that kind of ideology, don't let them in. There's not every Chinese person is a member of the Communist Party. Less than 10% of the population is. Letting the people who support America, bet them however you want. But if they're smart, why don't we let them here? I, I have my own personal experience trying to, with the H-1B program and some of the people we've hired over the years who we couldn't keep because of the lottery program. They didn't get the visa. And you, have, you, you train great people here, then you force them out. I mean, it's a very interesting dynamic and i had the exact same experience as you're saying you want to hire americans with some of those programming degrees but it actually ends up being asian i mean you see a lot of indian you see a lot of uh chinese you see i i do see that disproportionately as where you're seeing those advanced degrees now some of it maybe because they want to stay in the u.s so they go for this financial engineering degree and that's a way to stay in the u.s because they didn't get the h1b or something like that but is is there anything else you think academically that's not getting Americans to go for those degrees? Look, I think people have preferences, right? Uh, you know, there people go for lower paid jobs because they enjoy them. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people will become teachers, not because teaching is the highest paid position they could do. It's because they really love to interact with kids and help them study and have an impact in their lives. High, higher pay does not necessarily mean higher impact on, on society, I think. Uh, you know, or wages aren't just decided over the, you know, the the impact on, on society. They're also decided by preferences and relative supply of workers. And so the I, I think Americans ha, are, are better at different things, right? Especially because of the language, right? We know that when immigrants come in, they tend to take the jobs where less English ability is required, which makes Americans more highly prepared to deal with in-person personal interactions, which is why so many Americans are in services. So many Americans are in sales. So many Americans are in human resources and all the communications and all these areas where they're great at relative to immigrants. Um, while uh, more and more immigrants, especially from Asia, are great at mathematics, in part because the educational systems of Asian countries are just so much better teaching math than the american education system so sure i think we need to improve our education system which is really bad relative to other parts but that doesn't mean we shouldn't take advantage of smart people elsewhere too more population doesn't mean less jobs for americans otherwise why don't we reduce the population right because more kids also means more population but more children doesn't mean less opportunities for adults just like more immigrants doesn't mean less opportunities for the native born so you, you, we talked at the high level at the beginning of some of that illegal immigration that's come in. How much illegal, how much legal immigration comes in every year? What's your view of what the right number is, particularly if we focus on, I mean, you said the number one policy thing is allowing more high-skilled people into the country. What, what should we be doing in total? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, the illegal immigration is a problem. I think in general, what we need to look at is how do we limit immigration? that is not economically beneficial for Americans. And there's a lot of that, unfortunately. So the over 150,000 parents of US citizens are allowed to get green cards each year. Who are the parents of US citizens? Obviously, they wanna be with their children, and I think that it's a worthy thing, but these are people usually in their 50s who are gonna work here for maybe 10 years and then collect social security and Medicare. They are huge net burdens on the American budget. Uh, they, they are going to collect a lot more in benefits than they're going to pay in taxes. And this is something that we're allowing to happen. Uh, at the same time, we severely limit the people who are going to be net, net taxpayers. So I don't think the answer is necessarily, you know, how many green cards we should have. I generally think we could do with less green cards. I, I think what we need is more 
uh, immigrants who are going to benefit Americans. And that doesn't necessarily mean giving them permanent residence. I think we should have a lot more programs that allow you to come here on a visa and never seek U.S. citizenship, which is not really the goal for most people. For example, if you're the parent of a U.S. citizen, yes, you should be allowed to come here to work, but you should not be allowed to, just because you have a child here, to get a green card and then become a citizen uh, and collect Social Security and Medicare. Let them come in on non-immigrant visas and work for until until they, they want to. And then if they want to retire, they could go back to their home countries. Um, same with with workers. We should have more H-1B visas, not necessarily give them green cards. Would we want to give them green cards because we want them to we want to attract the, the highly skilled people? Sure. So I think a good trade-off policy-wise is let's not give green cards to the parents of U.S. citizens, to the siblings and all these other family members. Let's expand employment-based migration, which is not just good economically, it's also fair, right? It's more fair because, uh, you know, if you are the sibling of a U.S. citizen, you can apply to come here based on your skills. But if you don't have family here, you can't apply to come here on the family-based channels. So, you know, I think it would actually be attractive from the equity point of view to have more skills based and less family based. Um, we also have policies like the diversity visa lottery that a lot of people, I think, on the Democratic side praise, but because, you know, it gives opportunities to more people. And we, we could keep a lot of our family based and diversity based channels, I think, if we just upskill them. For example, right now, it's not a requirement to know English to come to America. And a lot of the family-based and diversity uh, immigrants, who are most of our immigrants, don't know English. English ability is the number one factor that increases immigrant earnings over their lifetime here, and therefore tax payments, right? We should require that every person getting a green card has at least a minimum level of English proficiency based on tests. Every other developed country does that. We could just require immigrants to take the TOEFL and get at least half of the score there to come here. If we just did that, which is not a big burden, it costs you know a, a, a less than $100 to take the TOEFL last time, at least I took it. Um, we, we could dramatically uh, change the composition of who comes here to people who know more English, who will make more money. And that's also going to change the view of Americans, right? Because if Americans see that the immigrants coming here are making more money, they're being more successful, they know their language, they're assimilating better, they're also going to grow more supportive of immigration. Yep. So we've got about five, six minutes. I have two things I wanted to close on. But for let's, let's probably break, break the time into half of each. First one is you wrote a paper on the New York policies for residency talked a little bit about the Roosevelt Hotel and what's going on there. Maybe for people unfamiliar with what's happening at the Roosevelt Hotel, how we're supporting it, how that creates a longer term challenge for what's sustainable. Give, give our listeners a little bit of background on that. Yeah. So what's happened is that, um, you know, all these immigrants have come through the southern border uh, and this, at least the Venezuelans, especially before October uh, last year. And uh, but now people from all over the planet, even from from uh, landlocked African countries like Chad that uh, that I've met, and they have been sent by the governor of Texas, the governor of Florida and on the southern border states by buses to a bunch of places in the U.S., especially New York City. And New York City has this very unique policy that anybody who shows up is entitled to live in a government paid shelter. And the consequence is that imagine you're an immigrant arriving at the southern border. You don't know anybody in the United States because you don't have family here or friends, um, which is a significant portion, even if a minority of those who cross, then they offer you. You can get a free bus ticket to New York City paid for by the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, and uh, you can get free housing and free food for as long as you'd like in New York. What are you going to do? You're going to take it. That's The immigrants are doing what's rational for them. New York City is not doing what's rational for us because this is costing billions of dollars. We're putting them in four-star hotel bedrooms that are costing over $200 a night on average. This means that the average immigrant family living in a hotel shelter here, which there are tens of thousands of them, is costing over 100 k a year just in housing to the city. Then they also give the three meals a day, by the way, which they don't complain of. But with them, turns out it's not bad food either. 
immigration is about. That's something immigration I support. I think people should be allowed to come here if they're eligible, and they should not be given free entitlements by the government, especially not on limit. Right, we're treating these people better than actual refugees, uh, which which don't get free housing. They only get some benefits for six months. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting piece on what's actually happening. I, I didn't realize the Rosewood Hotel is a two hundred twenty million dollar contract to to house all these temporary people there. Um, very interesting stuff, Daniel. What is your aspiration? You obviously have a lot of views, a lot of strong views on what we should be doing. How are who are you trying to help? get into the right programs? Are people listening to you enough? <laughs> well, I mean, I think everybody would say nobody's listened to enough on policy. I mean, obviously, I would like a lot of the things I want to, to be enacted, especially on immigration. Um, but look, I, I that's why I published with the Manhattan Institute these pieces. I hope the Biden administration listen, as, listens. I hope Republicans listen. I don't think this should be a partisan issue, the high-skilled migration one, at least. Uh, I understand why the border and illegal immigration is partisan. I don't really understand the high skilled migration one being partisan. Um, and uh, I, you know, as you know, I have also this nonprofit, the Dissident Project. We, you know, I care deeply about freedom in the United States, and I think it's under threat because, unfortunately, I think Americans have it too good, and they don't understand what oppression is like in other countries, and therefore. You know, people here take for granted that we have electricity and water. I I don't, right? I didn't have those things in Venezuela, or I did, and then I lost them. And uh, that's why I, I want to bring the perspectives of immigrants who lived in authoritarian countries like North Korea, like Hong Kong, like Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, to American children here at no cost. And that's what we do at Dissident Project. And if you're a teacher listening, if you're a parent, if you're a student, you can go to our website, dissidentproject.org. Dissident is double S, uh, project.org, and you can book us uh, at no cost to go to your high school. One of our speakers, not just me, of course. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've enjoyed reading all the papers you sent. Uh, so you can go to danieldemartino.com, get a sense of what he's doing. The Manhattan Institute is where you can find a lot of his work. Uh, hopefully, Dana, you'll be a return guest. Talk about what policies are are happening. Uh, keep up all the all the great work. Thanks for sharing your insights with us here on Behind the Markets. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been been a fun conversation. Uh, you can catch us next week on hearing the professor take on all the big economic data. You can listen to us on our Behind the Market podcast. Dion, thanks for helping us in the studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 